Alright, welcome back. It's Stearmid here, back with another discussion, this time with Eddie Conlon, a member of both the Teachers Union of Ireland and People Before Profit. Eddie has been active in the trade union movement since the 1980s and has been a leader of many campaigns against social partnership and for workers' rights. He'll be joining me today to discuss the general state of the unions in Ireland, the issues within them, and also how socialist activists can have a positive impact on them. The discussion is based around two articles which Eddie wrote for Rebel News, which I'll stick in the episode description for anyone that's interested. I'd also just like to highlight and apologise, as it seems from the 28th minute on we experienced some audio issues. This wasn't intended and shouldn't be an issue in the future. Alright, so I'll kick us off with Eddie. So, I'm delighted to be joined on the line by Eddie Conlon. Thanks a million for coming on, Eddie. I'm happy to be here, thanks. No problem. So, we'll uh, we'll get into the article, and I think in the first one you say correctly that the pandemic has demonstrated the brutality of the capitalist system, as employers have shown complete disregard for the health of their workers, and in some cases, like Debenhams, used the pandemic to implement redundancies and pay cuts. But you mentioned that in many cases the unions have failed to show any determination to get behind workers and fight for their interests. Why is this the case, and why have we reached this point? Okay, this is a sort of big question. So, first of all, just to talk about the pandemic for a minute, uh, I think two really interesting things have happened, and I wrote about this in the previous piece, uh, uh, actually for the IMR, uh, was about uh, two things. Uh, one, how the general level of risk in society was increased for workers as a whole. Because if you look at sort of the issues to do with safety and so on uh, across the workforce, they tend to be quite specific uh, differences between different kinds of workplaces. The level of risk tends to be quite variable. But actually with the pandemic, every worker became at risk. So it seemed to me it created a huge opportunity for unions to really mm. intervene and say, we are a shield, we are a protection here, uh, join us and so on. And the second thing it did obviously is it illustrated how important uh, frontline workers are but not just frontline workers, but also people like shop workers, uh, who you know at the st- even still now I think uh, yeah. the volume of sales and so on going through supermarkets is huge, and you know there were again great opportunities seemed to me to organise people because they, they weren't that assured about their safety. Many of them certainly based on uh, surveys done by Mandate. It was a great opportunity to intervene, uh, advance their conditions and so on in the context of the pandemic. Now, the problem is uh, with, let's say, take Debenhams as an example. We have on here a a perfect illustration of the sort of contradictory nature of unions. If those workers hadn't been in a union, that fight would never have taken place. So anyone who says, and lots, you know, there are people on the left broadly who sort of get given up on unions, think they're a waste of time and so on. If those workers hadn't been in a union, that story could never have taken place. And if you listen to them and describe how they're, how they organized prior to the strike and so on, it, it was very clear that the being in the union was really important. And I said, uh, couldn't, they would have never had an entitlement to two plus two if they weren't in the union too. Mm. So what they'd be in the union do is it pushed up their expectations. And that's what unions should do, pushed up their expectations. And in this situation, their expectations were shattered by the behavior of Demnums and therefore they went to the strike. And that's a common enough, actually, if you look at sort of 
the literature about strikes and so on. That's a common enough dynamic in strike situations where workers' expectations are, are not met and the demands for decency and things like that are not met and then they're prepared to go on strike. And the other thing is illustrates how poor the official movement has been mm. in supporting them. And this originates uh, from a basic problem at the start of the dispute. Mandate did not believe, certainly the official of Mandate did not believe they could win. It had no belief at all there was anything these workers could do to advance their position. So it had given up from the word go. And I argue, I argue that this is, a, well, as I said, that the unions are contradictory organisations. They mm -hmm. provide a mechanism to fight, but they tend to limit that fight to terms set by the system. And as part of that, uh, I've argued in, in these various articles that the problem isn't because they're bad people or even that they have bad politics, but actually there's a structural problem in the movement in that a layer of people dominate the movement who have, for example, well, just, just, just to break it down a little bit, who have different interests to workers because they're not in the same relationship to the boss mm -hmm. As a worker is right, so if their pay, if the workers they represent pay, who they represent pay is cut, these officials don't have their pay cut. The second problem is that they tend to have much higher salaries and so on than the people they represent. I think the general secretary of my own union is on in excess of one hundred and fifty thousand euros a year, right? And funnily enough, you don't spend any of this money because. Uh, they have expense accounts, they tend to get a free car, every meeting to go to to claim expenses for. So, you know, they tend to begin to live a different lifestyle than the people they represent, and they don't experience the same pressures on them uh, as, as sort of ordinary workers that are on ordinary workers. And the third dimension of this is, the, uh, is their emphasis on sort of their role and their expertise in resolving disputes. So they become committed to uh, the idea that uh, uh, it's through negotiation and compromise that industrial disputes are settled and not through uh, industrial action by workers. So they're very committed to the idea of industrial peace, uh, compromise with the boss, and often they tend to get absorbed into a sort of culture of interacting with the other side uh, a lot and tend to begin to develop shared uh, worldviews and things like that uh, with the HR managers and the bosses' representatives that they interact with a lot. And I'll just give you a simple example. It's, it's a bit of a funny one, really. Uh, for years, I, I mean, I've been out to the TUI Congress, uh, annual Congress since, I think, 1988. And for years, uh, they used to have this big uh, dinner dance at it, right? And then uh, when the... Dinner was over and the speeches were over. All the union officials would disappear and the executive would where are these people, you know? And it emerged uh, over time that they were up in a secret bar, right? <laughs> a secret bar somewhere in the hotel with all the representatives of the Department of Education, the management bodies, and so on. And also it was free bar, right? So that, that's just, uh, that, that makes it worse. But the, my point is, union officials thought it was better to spend their times in the company of representatives of the management side than uh, of representatives uh, or spend the time with the people they're supposed to represent, which were the union delegates and so on. So they get absorbed into this culture, I said, of, of, of dealing with the other side. They're on the phone to them all the time. They tend to come to share a common worldview, but it's centered on this idea 
a compromise and negotiation of the way to sort things out, not industrial action. And because of that, they become, they become quite intolerant then of opposition within the union, and they tend to use the union's machine to ensure that their views prevail. So what happens, I think, as a result of all of that, is they become overly concerned, I think Rosa Luxemburg talked about this, about organizational survival and the mm -hmm. interests of the organization over the interests of the people that it's actually meant to represent. So therefore, any challenges to the legitimacy of the organization or anything that's illegal, right? So breaking the Industrial Relations Act becomes a threat to the union and therefore they tend to oppose it. So my argument is there's a structural problem and you have to deal with the structural problem in structural terms. And I think there's been two long-standing demands on the left in relation to this. One is that all these people should be elected and they should be deselected if they're not carrying out the instructions of members. I don't think there's any validity to the argument of saying union officials are just like other workers. They're not, mm, yeah. right? They're not. And secondly, they should be on salaries and conditions linked to the people they represent. So they suffer, in, suffer is the wrong word maybe, but they, they feel the same effect of the cuts and so on that they negotiate you. Mm. So I think they are two simple proposals. Yeah, I think in, in terms of that, uh, you outline well in the piece that kind of how that conservative layer or elevated layer comes to exist and the kind of function that they have. But you also outline that the officials aren't still aren't able to effectively do what they want and they, that some pressure can still be exerted on them to act from both business heads and the members and that in this way they kind of have a like a dual function you might just outline how that how that operates that dual function okay well of course i mean if the if they could do what they like all the activity we engage in would be a waste of time wouldn't it i mean because then they'd be impermeable to any pressure from below at all okay so so that, as i said they have this uh, dual function in the sense that they have to at some level represent the membership if they don't, they're really not much use either actually to the members or to the other side even. So if mm. they feel, if the other side feel they have lost complete connection with their membership and are therefore not able to control them, well, then they're not much use. And there was a very good example of this actually during the Debenham strike. So at one stage, uh, KPMG made an offer of a million euros to the workers premised on the idea that uh, the union would go back and get the workers to accept this. Now, when it became clear, there was no way the workers were going to uh, yeah. accept this, right? Uh, two things happened. One is uh, KPMG withdrew the offer because they realized then that uh, there was no point of trying to deal with the officials as such because actually it was the workers that needed to be dealing yeah. with this. So the workers had rejected it and said very clearly this wasn't acceptable. So therefore, when that happened and that break, as I said, it was very clear then to KPMG that the officials really weren't representing the workers. Well, then the officials were of no use to the other side because yeah. they couldn't deliver for them. And it's that dynamic uh, I tried to talk about in the article about how they do have to, at some level, meet the expectations of the workers they're representing in order to be of any use to the workers and also to be of any use to the other side. So they can't do what they want, and therefore that opens up the possibility of uh, of putting pressure on them. In fact, sometimes 
because sometimes employers don't want to engage with unions or won't uh, engage in a way that the union officials want, sometimes they have to go back and have what I call the sort of control militancy. And the best example of that was the big, uh, there, was a, there was one day of industrial action uh, in the public sector after all the cuts uh, as a result of the financial crash. So we had our day of action. Uh, we all went home and we hadn't turned on the, we didn't put the kettle on actually, when the leader of the Public Services Committee of Congress, uh, who was Peter McLuhan at the time, was announcing that they'd be happy to go into talks with the government, uh, which then is what happened. But effectively what they did is they used the one day to get themselves to the table, so to speak. Didn't deliver very much for us at all, you know, and didn't allow the action to develop any further, but they used that sort of control militancy to get them in a position where the government was talking to them. Yeah, you can kind of, I think that's illustrative of how, because of the culture, you come to value like negotiation as an end in itself, and that all things are seen as like a drive towards it. I think it's it's mentioned in the article that a lot of issues arise from the union's commitment to social partnership. Some of our listeners might not be familiar with like the term or the concept, and so what is this concept and what role does it play today? Okay, so social partnership has a, a narrow and a, a wide meaning. At a wide level, it's it, it sort of, it, it, it's an ideological position really, which says there are common interests between employers and workers and there's a reason why we can sort these out, right? But there's no fundamental conflict of interest between workers and employers. And the more narrow level, it refers to a series of, of agreements which started in 1987, uh, when Fianna Charles Hoy really was responsible mm. for the first uh, attempt to, to initiate these uh, social partnership agreements. Um, uh, I can't remember. Uh, the Programme for National Recovery, I think the first yeah. one was called, 1987, right? And then since then, between 1987 and just prior to the crash uh, in 2008, I think it was, we saw the effective end of social partnership. We had a series of national pay agreements. And what happens in these social partnership agreements? The union agree we're not going to use our industrial muscle in any way whatsoever. We're going to take any strikes, effective industrial action in exchange for guaranteed pay increases. And also, so that's the heart of the, the social yeah. partnership deal is you uh, agree, unions agree to restrain from using their muscle in exchange for guaranteed uh, pay increases. Um, well, the problem with social partnership in Ireland uh, uh, and it is a problem elsewhere as well, is what these agreements evolved into much bigger uh, documents and so on, which tend to cover, you know, 100 pages in some case longer, where they would deal with a whole range of policy issues. Yeah. And effectively what the government was doing was signing the unions up to support government policy through these uh, national pay agreements. So a fundamental thing that happens with social partners, the unions give up their independence. They give up their independence to take a position that's different to the government, to campaign against the government on particular issues and so on. Now that's not to say they never did, but in the main, these agreements can, became so all-encompassing, uh, all-encompassing that they were effectively undermining the independence of the unions. And the second thing they did, and this is more important perhaps in terms of understanding where we're at, these social partnership agreements operate at the national level with very little possibility for uh, negotiation at the local level. 
So what tends to happen is that the local organization of unions tends to atrophy through the operation of, of, of national agreements. I think Mika already puts it well in his book. He talks about if you don't use a muscle, it's, it doesn't tend to work very effectively anymore, you know? Uh, so what happened is workplace organization was completely undermined by the operation of these agreements at a national level. And in fact, allied with that, there was a very concerted effort to put in place what they call partnership structures. Uh, I know myself from the public sector and you know, working in higher education and so on, there was a very concerted attempt to put in place partnership structures in the workplace where you, know, you would move beyond this uh, perspective that you know, there were differences, differences of interest between mm. workers and employers. So it's a whole range of things, but the key thing, and we have to understand the context of this, Throughout the uh, 70s, uh, it was a very, uh, you, know, you know, late 60s, early 70s, uh, 60s here was known as a decade of upheaval. There's a book written by Charles McCarty, who was actually the general secretary of TY eventually, uh, called Decade of Upheaval, uh, referring to the industrial relations situation. And on into the, uh, on into the 70s, you know, there was a quite a degree of militancy, large numbers of strikes, and high levels of union membership. I think by 1980, about uh, two thirds of workers were in a union, yeah. right? So over that period, an extended period of militancy, actually, I would argue, which led to this uh, idea that workers could see the relevance of unions, they were able to deliver for workers, and therefore they're obviously more willing to join. And workers and, and unions at the workplace were much stronger. All of that was changed by social partnership in my view. It's not just social partnership, there are obviously bigger economic and yeah. political factors at play as well, but social part partnership was a central uh, mechanism, so to speak, by which uh, union work workplace unionism became weakened. And therefore, as I said, there was much less ability of workers on the ground to do things, and therefore much le less reason for people to be involved. You know, if yeah. the union didn't do that on the ground, why would you get involved in it and so on? So I think we can trace... Uh, the uh, decline, uh, the decline of uh, union membership with things like the share of uh, wages and national income, for example, has declined in a similar fashion to the level of unionization. Uh, and also unionization itself has declined. So we're now at about, is it 25%? I think yeah. I said. Uh, yeah. Uh, but lower, much lower in the private sector. You know, there, there are huge differences between the uh, density levels across the public and private sector. So you're looking at probably about 15, 16% in the private sector. So compare that back to a situation where two thirds of workers were in a union. You know, this is a dramatic sort of change. And uh, I think can be largely accounted for by, uh, uh, the, by the operation of social partnership. That's not to say it was the only factor you know, we had a whole neoliberal offence across the world, yeah. you know, which obviously had impacts here as well. Uh, we had major recessions and so on. But social partnership is a key mechanism for making that happen. Yeah, and I think it's it's linked into that, um, the kind of conservatism of that bureaucratic layer that we were talking about, that they can fall back on social partnership or claim that they're restrained by that or that our hands are tied by the government. That operation of social partnership also embedded them in a whole range of bodies yeah. and institutions, you know, and so on. So the union officials were put on various boards of this, that, and the other, you know. And in fact, now, still, even when they retire a lot of these people, they get given jollies by the government. 
they retire into other positions. Paddy Heaney actually uh, talks a lot about the, the post-retirement job, you know, as a, as a big problem for trade union leaders uh, because ICTU, you know, as a central body, is often responsible for nominating people to these various bodies and therefore union officials in particular unions are often reluctant to uh, to stand up to ICTU because they'd be afraid that they won't get the post-retirement jolly, you know? Or it's like a lot of government officials that end up in NGOs or banking sectors or lobbying groups really did bring it all into the fold. You point out in the in the piece that a lot of the unions have far from like a homogenous character and you can find some conservative unions and you can find more combative or radical ones and this can also be seen in kind of union officials who can be more left or right wing in their orientation how does a a union or a union's rep orientation affect the possibilities for like fight back and and how should socialists relate to the different reps and unions both conservative and radical well there's a very simple answer there's a complicated answer uh the complicated answer is probably more interesting you know mm. At one level, I'm I'm, low to, I'm I'm tempted to say it doesn't actually make that much difference, you know. Okay. Uh, but the the reality is there are more apparently left wing unions and more right wing unions, and the I suppose in the Irish context, the unions that were around the uh, right to water campaign were are considered to be a bit more left wing, right? Mm. Uh, it may it does make a difference in the sense that people who are more left wing and so on maybe are more low to give members their heads and so on you know um but in reality you know in reality there's no there's not huge evidence in Irish context certainly that having a bunch of left wingers leading the union uh, uh you know makes a fundamental difference i'm not saying it doesn't make any difference but it makes a fundamental difference so, you know, the record of mandates in the Debenhamster strike, for example, is not very good, even though it's considered to be one of these left-wing unions. But a better example is the uh, Unite and what came before the Amalgamated Transport and General Workers Union. I've just written a review, actually, though it's in the current issue of IMR, Mick O'Reilly's book, because um, uh, he was the regional secretary for a long time. He was a left-winger. And very good, uh, you know, uh, formally, you know, he always said the right things, completely opposed to social partnership. He was removed from his position by the uh, uh, people at the top of the union in London uh, because he was, uh, because he allowed the uh, Brennan Ogle to come into the union with mm. the train drivers. But my criticism of Mick, and I mean, he knows these because I've written them, right? <laughs> and they're not personal in a sense, is that, while he was rhetorically very good, that never translates into any real action on the ground, right? So he never fundamentally challenged the structures of social partnership. While Unite or the Amalgamated Transport always voted against, uh, always voted against partnership deals, they never, uh, they never really developed any real action on the ground to challenge them, right? Uh, they never really developed real action on the ground to challenge them. Um, and that's the sort of problem. So in a sense, he stuck to the rules of the game, right? Okay. Now, he obviously didn't stick to them enough for some people because they tried to remove him from office. But, you know, the, there are limitations to the strategy of trying to capture the unions from the top. I think invariably, because of the pressures I, I described earlier on, all officials get caught up in these pressures. They're not immune from them. And therefore, they uh, tend to see themselves as mediators between 
the bosses yeah. and the workers, you know, which is the fundamental problem, you know. Yeah, and I think you you outline in the most recent article um, kind of strategies that socialists have adopted in the past to to transform unions into like real kind of organizations for struggle or real like radical offers of like to build workers power uh i think the first two are kind of broad leftism which you define as like a a strategy which seeks to get left-wing reps elected through the union in order to like affect a sea change kind of incrementally and then also rank and fileism which is like an emphasis on building groups of militant members in each union who can create kind of like a counter pressure on the bureaucracy and eventually like win more democratic or or a more militant approach the third one that you outline is breakaway unions what is that concept and and where does that originate the concept is the idea that uh, current unions are so bad they're irreformable what we need to do is go away and set up our own unions right that's Truly, the basic argument that, uh, and this sort of, I, I mean, some of this originates uh, from the early days of the movement, particularly when general workers began to be organized. So the original unions were mainly based on crafts. And uh, then there was a, an effort, you know, I don't want to simplify the history of this, but very simply, <laughs> The next wave of organization was amongst general workers who the craft unions sort of refused to organize. And therefore you had the emergence of uh, syndicalism uh, as a sort of uh, a major influence within the movement that had a big impact on people like Conley and Larkin, for example, uh, and was a major uh, influence on the establishment of the Irish transport. But also in the US, uh, uh, the international workers of the world, the world leaders were known uh, you know, had an orientation to organizing general unions and didn't believe you could uh, reform the craft unions uh, in order to make them uh, more relevant uh, or, and more radical. Mm. But the idea is, uh, you know, the, the, there's, there's, there's sort of two problems with it in a sense. One is a more practical one and one is a more ideological one. Uh, the practical one is that when unions break away, and the best example in Ireland is the National Bus and Rail Union, and I sort of tried to outline this various uh, breakaways that have been amongst transport workers in Ireland. But we started off, uh, the National Bus Union broke away from the Irish transport on the basis of it wasn't really militant enough, it wasn't addressing their needs. Then some train drivers joined and became the National Bus and Train Drivers Union. And then we had a breakaway of train drivers from that union and from the Irish <laughs> transport to form ILDA, which was Brendan, which was established by Brendan Ogle, uh, ILDA. And interestingly enough, the biggest critics of ILDA were the NBRU, who had already broken away from the Irish <laughs> transport. Uh, so there's the, the two, don't want to trivialize this too much, yeah. but at one stage, you know, we had three unions representing a very small group of, of, of train drivers. Uh, I give a number, I can't remember what it is now off the top of my head. Uh, you had three different unions representing one small group of workers. So that's a problem, you know, that, yeah. uh, you know really you need to have some unity uh, if you're going to be effective. But the other practical problem is these unions haven't really ended up being any better than the unions that broke away from. So I wouldn't rate the National Bus and Rail Union uh, any better than the Irish Transport. In fact, a group of people... Uh, few years ago broke away <laughs> or left the Irish transport and rejoined the MBRU uh, uh, or sorry left the MBRU excuse me and joined the Irish transport 
because of the manner in which uh, a militant within the MBRU was being represented by the union. So you have this very complicated now set of arrangements. Uh, but that's, so you have this division, but also then you have this idea that is really, are these breakaway unions any better? You know, yeah. if, they're, if they're just replicate the problems that were in the, uh, in the unions they broke away from. The political problem is this, you see, unions aren't revolutionary organizations, right? Yeah. And this is one of the problems with syndicalism. Syndicalism basically believes that if you organize enough workers, get them into one big union, and slowly sort of take over the 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 the, power, the, the, the slowly take over industry as they would have described it in, in you know uh, historically, uh, take over the wheels of the economy. Slowly, the state would disappear. You know, you know they didn't believe in the need for any other kind of organization, such as a political party, to smash the state, right? So what syndicalism was trying to do, it seemed to me, was merge the two, uh, was try to overcome the contradictory nature of unions by saying, we'll turn unions into revolutionary organizations, yeah. right? And that's highly problematic because workers don't join unions because they're revolutionaries. Join unions because they have a job, they do a job, they do other workers do the same job, and they want someone to protect them on the job or give them a bit of say over what happens at work. That's fundamentally why most people join unions. Don't join unions because they have a political project, right? Yeah. So I think the syndicate is confused or didn't understand properly or adequately what the function of unions were within society, within capitalist society. And therefore that leads to this political problem that if you have breakaway unions from the main unions, what you're doing is you're pulling away the best political layer, so yeah. to speak, uh, out of the mainstream unions and they all become gathered up over here. So we're all happy, we're all in a nice union where we all can confirm to each other what we, what, what we believe, and we have an agreed strategy, but we've no effect because if the mass of workers over here who have stayed in the mainstream unions because they didn't join the unions for a political reason or because of their political project. They just want a decent organization that's going to protect them. So I think uh, breaking away and establishing lets the bureaucracy off the hook. It gives them free reign and it removes that layer who could actually organize against them and help workers to organize against them by developing networks of opposition. Uh, it takes them out of the way and gives the bureaucracy free reign. And I think that's the problem with this. There's no evidence in my view that breakaway unions work. There are all sorts of other really practical problems, like can you get a negotiation license? You have to have a license to negotiate yeah, here. Yeah. Are people going to join an organization that doesn't have a negotiating license? What's the point of being in a union that can't do that for you? So I think there's all sorts of problems with this. I think we need to be much clearer though on the left about what we're trying to do in terms of our work within the unions. Uh, and we could just say maybe a couple of things about that. I think, yeah. uh, I don't think we should be sectarian about some of these things, first of all. I, I, I'm not against, although I've said that capturing the union from the top is not necessarily the best strategy, I'm not against running people in elections. Uh, I am against actually people taking up jobs as officials in unions because I think eventually they get worn out and they get absorbed into the system. Yeah. Unless those positions are elected, I don't think the left wingers and the best militants should go for them. Uh, I do believe though that people should uh, run for election at the national level. I think it can uh, raise a banner for the left yeah. in the unions, give people a bit of confidence if they do well, 
and get people to understand that actually there is a different way to go at this, you know. Uh, so that's the first thing. Secondly, but though more importantly, is we need to develop networks of militants across the unions. These should be cross-party networks. They should involve all those who are prepared to do two things, to challenge the bureaucracy in terms of democratizing the union and arguing for a strategy that says the union should fight for their members. So they're the base. I mean, I don't think you need a long, elaborate program or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. I think you need a simple set of demands around which people can be organized but the key thing is that we uh, uh, have this dual focus on effective action and democracy. And let me just make this further point, sorry, because I think this is an interesting, because the level of union organization is so low now, right? And because the unions really are not doing very much about it, you know? Yeah. Um, there's a sort of responsibility, although I'm, I'm slightly ambiguous about this myself, about how much of a responsibility the left has for this, to uh, begin to address that basic organizational question more in terms of getting people into unions and so on. So we have a bit of a, uh, it's not quite a dilemma, right? I mean, I think we should be obviously encouraging people to join and we should be helping people who want to get organized in the job and so on. But fundamentally, that's the job of a union, you know. Yeah. And I think perhaps we might be better putting more pressure on unions to do that more effectively. But there will be times, I think, where we end up, rather than just being the opposition in the union, if I could put it to you that way, and arguing for a more developed uh, strategy and so on, that we may end up having some responsibility for some basic organizational work and rebuilding unions as, as basic organizations uh, you know, over the next period of time. Because I can't see any evidence from the top that they're, they yeah. know how to do this, they're serious about it, and so on. You know? And do you see that change in kind of left organizations at the moment? I know I've seen myself a lot of union initiatives starting up in 2020, which I don't know if that's a, a new development, but it, it was certainly noticeable myself. Well, within PBP, we've taken a very conscious decision yeah. uh, uh, to reorientate uh, a bit towards the workers' movement. Uh, we think there's a, there's been a period of time when uh, it's been difficult to do that, yeah. when their uh, energies were devoted to electoral work and you know uh, building organizations in the community and so on, so it's the water charges movement. But that now, you know, uh, well, there's always been this task, but we've sort of Becoming more, become more focused on it yeah. in terms of having a begin to develop a coherent strategy towards uh, towards union work and organising workers, and to that effect, we've you know we recently appointed a full time organiser just to deal with union work, and as you've noted, we've been pushing out more stuff, yeah. more material, and so on about workers. We've been very actively engaged with the Devon's workers. And also we've made the whole issue of workers in the pandemic uh, a central part of our work in the, in the last year or so. Uh, I think this reorientation is necessary. Mm. Uh, but at the same time, there's no quick fixes for this stuff. Uh, it's very tedious work sometimes. Uh, and we're, we're trying to do three things, really. Yeah. One is to get people into unions, as I said, uh, and I said the degree to which we have to be responsible for, for doing all of that is, is, is a bit of a debate that needs to be had, I think, you know, but it does marry quite well of, you know, we have a responsibility to build movements as well as build parties, so to speak, you know, yeah. uh, um, 
so that's one thing we're trying to do is get people into unions. Secondly, we're trying to activate our members within their unions to get onto committees and become more involved, more coherent in what they're trying to do. And thirdly, then we're trying to push the idea of a network of militants, a militant minority people have talked about. This is the idea that comes from syndicalism as well, uh, getting the militant minority organized uh, so they can be more effective. Yeah, I think it's... There's a lot of work to be done and it's quite challenging. And the results are, you know, often quite small, you know, uh, um, and also then elections come along every four yeah. years. <laughs> and, you know, you, you have to, yeah. of course, yeah, yeah, you have to, yeah, it blows you a little bit off course, maybe, yeah. No, but that's that's uh, very encouraging, and uh, thanks a million for that, Eddie. That was uh, a pleasure. I think we've covered a good bit, so we can leave it there. Thanks a million. Okay, thank you. It was, it was, it was, that was a pleasure for me too. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks, Eddie. Okay, so thanks a million for listening, everyone. More can be found in the episode description on this topic, along with our Patreon for anyone that wants to chip in. Thanks a million. See you next time. <laughs>